Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stuart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about Skyfall, starring Daniel Craig, Judi Dench, Javier Bardem, Ray Fiennes, Naomi Harris, Berenice Lim Marlowe, and Albert Finney, directed by Sam Mendes. This is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in LA. And this is Arnie, and we've done 25 Bond podcasts. This is the last one, Brock, so don't cock it up. <laughs> okay, it's been me. <laughs> I've been the problem this entire series. <laughs> Welcome to the finale of our incredibly long James Bond retrospective series. I am very happy to have taken this journey with the two of you, and this is the one we've been waiting for, the one we've been anticipating this entire retrospective series, the brand new James Bond movie, Skyfall. I wasn't even sure this was ever going to happen, to be quite honest. All the foes that Bond has fought probably have none have been worse than MGM's creditors. <laughs> I mean, this film took five years to come together. There were times when they were loading up the plane to go and shoot, and they were told, uh, you better turn the plane around. We're bankrupt. I mean, there were so many false starts on this. It's amazing that they were able to get it done with Sam Mendes. Yeah, he signed on really, really early, and then when they were having their financial troubles, I heard something about he agreed to stay on as a consultant, I guess giving himself the out if he wanted to direct something else, but luckily his schedule worked out for him, and he's able to do the movie with Daniel Craig. And who knows, maybe the movie's better for having the time to rethink and regroup. Quantum of Solace was such a rush job. I'm glad they didn't knock another one out right away. I mean, by taking four years, it does allow them to rethink and maybe reorient Bond. So I'm appreciative that whatever we're getting, it has been well thought out. They also were concerned about Daniel Craig coming back, because if it took little longer than four years, they could have actually lost him as well. He Just like Timothy Dalton, after that long stretch of six, said, yeah, I'm done. Daniel Craig could have been walking too. Yeah, that Cowboys and Aliens money must be calling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another Golden Compass? Uh, no, I don't think so. But yeah, he was probably in it to win it. I think that was one thing that definitely would have really tainted this one, is if Craig wasn't coming back, boy, I would be upset. If Quantum of Solace had been the end of him, that would have pissed me off. And then 25 years from now, people would say that it was that movie that caused him to leave the role. 
yeah, and four years for me with a Bond movie, I'm really looking forward to a new one. But of course, as everyone knows by now, I'm completely spoiler free going into this thing. I came into this with just trying to be as clean slate as possible. And it's really hard to avoid things like people saying the best Bond ever all around you and not trying to affect you. But I did the best I could to go into this with a clean slate. Yes, and with all other countries in the world having already seen it. This is yet another release where England and Europe got it way before America. There have been a lot of opportunities to have things spoiled, but I agree. I largely went into this thing not knowing too much. So thank you to all those that kept it spoiler-free on Facebook and the forums. If it hadn't been for this retrospective series, I don't know exactly if I would have paid much attention to a new James Bond film. Obviously, this has gotten a lot of buzz, but I haven't seen any of the Craig ones in theaters. I enjoyed Casino Royale, but the word of mouth on Quantum of Solace was such that I never wanted to see that. And so finally, with this one, I tried to evaluate how excited I would have been. And the answer is I wouldn't have been excited and I wouldn't have made a point to see it. But if I was going to go to a movie that weekend or the weekend after because of the buzz, this probably would have been the one I would have seen. I think everyone's going to wind up at this one. It's bigger than Bond. It's really headed to be the most successful one in the whole franchise if it keeps going at the rate that it does. And that's not just in the States. Worldwide, this thing's making a ton of dough. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't you tell them, Arnie, what everyone else already knows? Give them that plot. We open the movie with James Bond working in Turkey with Agent Eve to recover a stolen hard drive that contains the identities of all NATO operatives working undercover in terrorist organizations. A chase occurs and Bond and the mercenary wrestle for the hard drive atop a moving train. Eve has a shot, but Bond is in the way, and M orders Eve to take the shot, and she does shooting Bond square in the chest, knocking him from the train and allowing the mercenary to get away. Bond is presumed killed in action, and this failure causes M to lose her job. The Intelligence and Security Committee Chairman Gareth Mallory informs her that she will be retiring in two months, allowing her to save public face, but losing her job. But that alone is not enough for the hard drive, as the terrorist who stole it starts hacking MI6 systems, specifically M's PC, and causing an explosion at MI6, killing several agents. This causes Bond to resurface from his drunken debaucherous existence to protect M and England from the attacker. But first, Bond needs to be found fit for duty, but his wounds still prevent him from being physically at his peak, and his psychological tests go little better. He finally cuts the shrapnel from his shoulder himself, and analysis of the shrapnel helps them identify the man Bond was chasing as Mercenary Patrice, who's headed to Shanghai for a job. Bond meets with Quartermaster Q, who gives him a palm recognition gun and radio transmitter, and Bond goes to find out for whom Patrice was working, but in a fight in a skyscraper, Patrice falls to his death, revealing nothing. But his payment, a credit trip to a Macau casino, leads Bond to meet Severine, a woman present during Patrice's Shanghai assassination. Bond realizes she's being forced to work for someone against her will and offers to kill her employer, so she warns him of an impending attack and tells him the name of her boat. If Bond survives, she'll take him to her employer, and of course he does, so she takes him to the island owned by Raul Silva, a former MI6 agent who's gone rogue. Silva was a hacker and field agent, real name, Giago Rodriguez, and in his spare time, he was hacking the Chinese. China made a deal to release six MI6 agents in exchange for Silva for his crimes of hacking, and they torture and interrogate him. He even takes his cyanide capsule, but it only disfigures him, it doesn't kill him, and now he wants revenge. He wants M dead for giving him up. 
He's captured by Bond on the island, but it's all part of his plan. While Bond investigated, the terrorists released the names of five agents to the web and a message given to M of, Think on your sins. This causes a public uproar, and M is called for an inquiry into her handling of the stolen hard drive. Meanwhile, Q tries to decrypt Silva's laptop, but that releases a virus into the MI6 system and Silva escapes. He goes after M at the hearing, but Bond saves her and drives her to his parents' old homestead in Scotland, the estate called Skyfall. Bond has Q leave a breadcrumb that only Silva could find, and then Bond and M go to Skyfall. They meet up with groundskeeper Kincaid, who knew Bond as a young boy, and the three booby-trap the house. Eventually, Silva's men come, and one does tag M with a bullet, but they kill the attackers, and when Silva comes himself on a chopper with a second wave of troops, Kincaid and M flee through underground tunnels while Bond stays to fight. Skyfall is blown up when the chopper crashes upon it, but Silva sees M fleeing in the distance. He captures her and wants her to kill them both with a single bullet, but Bond arrives, stabs Silva in the back, killing him, but M's wounds are fatal, and she dies in Bond's arms. At the end of the film, Bond returns, ready to serve Her Majesty for the new M, Mallory, and his secretary Eve, whose last name is Moneypenny, and we get the classic gun barrel sequence one last time as credits roll. An incredibly detailed plot this time, a far cry from the short plot summary of GoldenEye, and I can't wait to talk about it with you two and see what you thought. And when the movie started, I was very much thinking Quantum of Solace, because the way Quantum of Solace started right about where Casino Royale ended, the fact that it continued the story, the fact that we had so many sub-characters coming back and the continuation of the Quantum storyline, a storyline that in my mind is still very much out there as Quantum is still out there, I kind of figured we might be picking up on the same threads. I thought this might be the third part in a trilogy, but as the plot summary shows, this is completely standalone. I think that that might have been the movie we got had they been quicker to tell this story. Had this come out two years after Quantum instead of four, I bet you they would have probably followed up on all of those threads. All those people I cited last time as mentioned in the dossier, but we didn't actually see caught. But no, this is not a quantum story. The world has kind of forgotten about quantum. I think its reputation fell by the time that they were putting this together. And I think going a different direction might have been the right approach. Certainly, you're not trying to chase the success of quantum with this one. You're trying to get back to casino. Yeah, and they all feel that quantum was rushed, but they all wanted to come back to a meaty story, something with character and things. And when you hire a director like Sam Mendes, they were looking for that on purpose. They were decided that this guy is the one to helm a movie that we want to tell with this kind of character work and story. Yeah, I also think that just the dynamics of spy work have changed in this time. That it might have seemed like seeing a big cabal of network of spies and Al-Qaeda, if you were, was the way to go back in 2008. But nowadays, you look at spy work, it's WikiLeaks, right? It spills out on the internet. The fact that they go for this Julian Assange kind of act-alone terrorist, the fact that it's a personal vendetta, I think that's more true to the way things are going now. It's not countries that attack us. It's anyone from your past. It's the shadows. So I like the approach. I think they, as always, do a really good job of staying contemporary with international threats. But this movie, Stuart, although it's being very contemporary with the threats, uh, one of the big themes of the movie and it hits you over the head with it a lot, is that the old ways are still good. And, you know, sometimes you got to go old school and the old ways should not be forgotten. And it constantly comes back in this movie. So it's kind of they want to have their cake and eat it, too. And they're trying to prove a point. Obviously, this being Bond's 50th year in movies, I think that was very much on their mind 
when they put that kind of stuff into the script. There was a lot of that in the script. One of the things that I like about this movie is that it has some big overarching themes. It tells a spy story, but like you say, when you mention the old ways are the best, this seems to me to be very much a story about maturity in many different senses of the word. Absolutely right. You can feel the Bond franchise reflecting on its decades of work, picking through what it wants to keep, and leaving the rest behind. This definitely feels like both a reinvention and a reminiscence. And it really grabs you right from the get-go. We're in Turkey. Now, we've done Turkey a lot. We did Turkey in From Russia With Love. We did Turkey in World Is Not Enough. I'm over Turkey, or so I thought, until I saw how cool it could be again via motorcycle chase. The gun barrel sequence was not at the beginning of the movie, and I was really hoping it would be this time, because the end of the movie, like we talked about last podcast, I thought it was leading into this. But as soon as we get the first couple of shots of Turkey and the chase starts proper, I forgot about that. I was like, okay, not going to get it, and I was engrossed in what was going on. Did you guys anticipate that the gun barrel was going to be back this time, or did you not even think about it until later? I thought about it. I really did. It was very much on my mind because I was curious because it felt like at the end of each of the first two movies, we ended with him being James Bond. You know, we called the first one Bond Begins and then the second one kind of followed up on it. I was ready for it to go back there and it didn't. It started again with just a really smashing action scene, kind of like Quantum. But here's the way that you really know that you're in the hands of a very clever director. Sam Mendes does give us that gun barrel visual. It's just not the gun barrel sequence. The opening shot of this movie is a blurry, grayish tunnel in which Bond is approaching us with gun outstretched. It's the gun barrel sequence. It's just not the classic bubble going across the screen, walk, turn, and shoot gun barrel sequence. They do their own version. I actually thought that was his way of doing it and getting us right into the story because Bond is walking into a hotel room of murdered fellow MI6 agents and is quickly rushed out the door, jumps in a jeep, and goes into one of the best action sequences of the franchise. I cannot agree with you more. This is an insanely fun action scene. It is just kinetic. You had mentioned when we started Casino Royale how they were really trying to get that Bourne type of feel. Here I feel they've done Bourne one better. It had that kind of excitement and realism, but man, Mendez just knocked it out of the park with this one from a car chase that has humor with jokes about not needing the rearview mirrors to the motorcycle chase that I can't believe they're going up a flight of stairs to an old-fashioned climbing on top of a train chase. It is astoundingly kinetic. Well, also, they're not only bringing it back to Bourne, they're bringing it back to Bond. The stunts in this opening sequence, the motorcycle, they had stuntmen driving on rooftops. And if that wasn't real, well, I'll eat my hat. That looks so good. It was just amazing stuff. So, yes, they had a modern contemporary style. They had all different kinds of transportation. And they had great James Bond-type opening sequence stunts. This opening scene is fantastic. What I also like, though, is right before the action starts, I mean, we have Bond coming in and he's trying to recover the hard drive. But before we even have the action, we start setting up some themes of this movie because he goes in and he sees another agent who's shot and down. And he's got M in his earpiece, M saying, go after the hard drive, leave the agent. And Bond wants to stay there and try to help the agent. And this, I didn't realize at the moment, but this just comes up again and again in this movie is 
is about the mission versus the people and becomes the reason why when we get to Silva, he does what he does. M is more fixated on getting that hard drive back than she is on Bond helping another agent survive this fight. That's not the first time the James Bond series has dealt with that, but it certainly does come up over and over again in this movie, and it certainly does play. I gotta tell you, though, there's a couple of parts in this scene before it gets to the chase where they're doing the whole bits in the car. I felt a little bit of a plod, where they had that great scene with him going through the house, and then he gets in the car with Eve, and then I felt like it just sat there for a few minutes. And then it got kinetic, and then it sat, and then it got kinetic again. And it was really odd to me. I was thinking, why wouldn't he keep it going, keep it going, keep it going? And for the first time in the movie, it will come up later, again, I got taken out a tiny bit. And I just don't understand why, considering how great this opening sequence is. I think the pauses that we have are exchanges he gets to have with Eve. And for all of the movie, I have no idea who this character is. I recognize that I don't know what her name is, but I just figured it's another Kissy Suzuki situation of, oh, they just haven't told us, or they told me and I didn't bother to write it down. I'll look it up on IMDb. I have no idea that we're in the presence of new Money Penny. I gotta say, let's get to this right away. I love what they have done with Money Penny here. I didn't know she was coming back. I kind of thought that the new franchise had dispensed of her, but lo and behold, it's a nice ending twist that she's been here all along in this adventure and proves herself every bit as equal here in this phenomenal action scene. The lulls you're talking about are these funny exchanges, it's sideways glances and flirtations Bond is having yet again with Money Penny. Yes and no. I'm talking more about a pace edit thing. But yes, I'm also glad humor came back into a Daniel Craig movie. Because I kind of like the humor with the mirrors. And also, on your point of Money Penny, I didn't get it until we saw the coat rack at the end of the movie. As soon as they walked through the door and I saw the coat rack, I'm like, oh, she's Money Penny. So I got taken for that ride too. I didn't find any lulls here in the beginning. I enjoyed it. I was very much taken because of the action, because of the camera work, because of the acting. Eve is great in this. I didn't know who she was. I figured she was just another spy, probably a lover. Did not take her as Money Penny either. Nomi Harris, completely unrecognizable. I've seen her in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies and 28 Days Later. Didn't place her at all, but loved the energy she brought. And no, I mean, if we're talking all this pre-credits, the pre-credit sequence to me was a roller coaster ride. And any time that it wasn't action, it was just that slow build, like when you're being pulled up by the chain to the top of the roller coaster before you plummet down the other side. I was not pulled out at all by it. And this whole chase sequence, which is great on top of the train, the fight, the climax of it with Eve having the shot and then having Bond in there and he couldn't get a clean shot. How about that last shot when she shoots Bond, the music's completely gone and he's just falling. What a incredible visual. What an amazing scene. It is something else. Did she shoot him with a sandbag, though? I mean, there, how could he live through that? <laughs> well, yes. That is the question, isn't it? That is the part of this that they can never really explain, is that no, in a realistic action scenario, I don't care, James Bond, Superman, who you are, there is no way that anyone could take that hit fall that distance, go over a waterfall, and live. The idea that Bond is going to survive this stretches credibility, but you know what? It is a grabber. It is the perfect hook to get us into this movie. This movie is about redemption, coming back from the dead. Does Bond still have life in him? These are the questions we're meant to ask, so we'll start with this point. They played this game before and you only live twice, but yeah, Bond is dead. Can he come back? It is not 
just in You Only Live Twice. How many times have we seen James Bond die, quote unquote, in the opening sequence? And they brought that back. How great was that? A subtle nod to the previous movies. And we haven't seen that, I think, since Connery, right? I don't believe they did that for anybody else besides. But it's done so cinematically. Not only is it a staggering shocker of violence, just watching him fall, but I just love the way that they edit this. The transition of we cut back to cold blue London and M saying nothing. She's just staring out the window and the rain is pattering against the window. And that sound of that water just effortlessly cuts into the rippling of the waterfall as his body goes over. This is when I know that we're dealing with probably the best director that's ever had his hands on a James Bond movie. Yeah, I mean, this is the guy who brought us Road to Perdition, American Beauty. Road to Perdition had action, but wasn't an action film. American Beauty, obviously, a drama. Has he done action like this before? I don't know if you'd call Jarhead an action movie. It's set in a war. It's an Iraq thing. There are battles, but up to this point, Sam Mendes has largely been known for expertly photographed dramas and comedies with, yeah, a tinge of action in it. But it was a weird choice, really, to go with him for Skyfall. Not the first time they've gone with a director more known for drama than action. They oftentimes do that, quite frankly. But they've never gone with someone who had an Oscar statue on their mantle. And normally, you wouldn't think that they would do this. Most people, when they win an Oscar, don't turn around and then go make a genre film. They take that clout to do a pet project. But it's been years since he won the Oscar, and he's done a lot of plays since then and things like that, Stuart. So it's been at least 10 years, right, since American Beauty came out. Yeah, but he hasn't had a career fall either. This isn't somebody who was had former glory and then is having to do an Oscar. I do think it's a weird transition to have the resume that he has and then say, hey, I'm going to do this action franchise, Bond 23. I think that is an unusual thing. You don't see Scorsese signing up for the next Spider-Man. You don't see that kind of director do pulp. The fact that he did do it lets me know that they're trying to do more than pulp here. They really are hoping to make this one an artistic success beyond an action success. So when I see him die this way, it feels more than all the other deaths we've seen, Brock. It really feels like a dramatic final total death. It does make me wonder. Now, I know he's going to come back alive. They're not going to start a movie by killing the character and then have Money Penny finish out the rest of the two hours here. But I am <laughs> wondering, how are they going to breathe new life in this? The tone is perfectly set for it as we roll into the credit sequence. Yeah, and what a credit sequence, too. I've always felt the Craig credit sequences have something new and different that we hadn't gotten before. Mostly bland music, but just a wonderful visual style, but this one is the first time I can ever think of Bond opening credits feeling so damn ominous. Because he had just been, quote-unquote, killed, we see the credits focusing around Bond again. He's got that shoulder wound, and I can't recall in all these 23 movies ever even seeing Bond get shot, let alone having it such a focus of the opening credits. Bond was very much the focus in Die Another Day's credit sequence, and we talked about that in a couple of shows ago. And this feels exactly like that, doesn't it? In the way that they're actually kind of transitioning into it. I mean, by going him splashing into the water and suddenly he's being grabbed by a naked woman, it takes a minute for you to realize, hey, this is the credits. I saw this with some people that had only seen Casino Royale and they didn't know that Bond credits typically have nude women around. They thought this was a mermaid. I was like, no, 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 no. I'll tell you later. Just, yeah. just, just watch the movie. <laughs> 
Right. And so while it was kind of visually stunning and it was kind of nice that they kind of explained a little bit of how Bond got out of his predicament and things like that, it's not exactly the first time we've seen that. Perhaps the terrible Madonna synth pop changed the mood of that one for me versus Adele's funeral dirge. I mean, part of the darkness of this scene is that the imagery there. I mean, we see Bond shooting shadows of himself. We see James Bond with a target on himself. And we see all these weird, like, ink blot tests. It felt very Jungian. <laughs> Did you see the Dark Overlord in there, Arnie? I think that some of this is meant to evoke death. There's gravestones, tombs, blood is literally in the water swirling around. I'm trying to follow Bond's corpse to see if we can actually see a real reason why he survives this incredible catastrophe that's befallen him. I don't think they ever tell us, right? We never really know why Bond comes back from the dead. There is no clues here that I can tell that tell us how he actually could have survived this. I can't see it either. But a lot of the stuff you mentioned, like the graves and things, what we have here in these opening credits is an entire montage of things that are going to come later in the film. Just like Friday the 13th Part 8, where we see all the scenes that Jason will visit later. Yes, exactly <laughs> like that. And when I saw the dragon in the opening sequence, I'm like, okay, that better come in later, because that's just so odd to have right now. <laughs> so when I saw it later in Shanghai, I'm like, okay, good. Good, good, good. <laughs> it's a theme, guys. The past is coming back. Mendes is telling us quite visually these ominous signs of death, these portents, come back to haunt Bond later. That is, in fact, what Silva will represent. It's the whole plot of this movie is the past coming back to Bond. And I think it works even better than the way that they tried to tie torture in to the plot of the Die Another Day sequence. I mean, I think it's just smoother, partly because the song is more appropriate to this dirge-like feel here. Adele has taken the Monty Norman theme and turned it into a death march. She slowed it down and revamped it. Let the Skyfall is nothing more than Monty Norman's James Bond theme done as awake. But I gotta say, I like it. I wasn't head over heels about it. It's right in the middle of the road for me. But I liked the visuals and I was really taken by the credits and the names popping at me and things like that. So the song just kind of went in one ear and out the other for me. Well, I do think that she's evoking some imagery. So the first line of the song is, this is the end. And we're seeing the corpse floating there. She definitely collaborated with Mindy's to create the feel for this moment. This wasn't just Madonna saying, I'm going to write this dance song and you're going to put it at this credit sequence. These were two people collaborating to create a total experience here. And Adele's song works. I mean, I like it in the same way that I like Moonraker. It is mournful. It is one of the sad ones, and it's pretty good. I like it well enough. I kind of like Adele's stuff. I have two of her albums. She only has two. Okay, I have all of her <laughs> albums. <laughs> I'm yeah. not a big enough fan to know how many albums she has, but I'm a big enough fan to buy two of her albums. How about that? Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. If she had early stuff, I didn't want to get into it. <laughs> but this song, I like it. And the more I hear it, the more I like it. It's not going to be in my top five Bond songs ever, but it's one that for the Adele connection, I'll buy the 99 cent download too. You know, Stuart, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but Sam Mendes did give Adele the complete filming script. Before she wrote the song. I sense that. I really do feel like she knew that this was her moment to dramatize in song. And it works as well as a pop song. It works well 
even better, really, in the context of this movie. The only thing I would say is that it's kind of cheating when you base your whole melody around a beloved theme like Monty Norman's, you know, the da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I mean, that's sort of the easy way out. But hey, I still think it works. It's going to hurt her Oscar chances, too. I've heard that, that she may actually be disqualified from best song because it takes too much from that song. And when we get back into the story, three months have passed, and we're hovering with them. They're keeping us, quote-unquote, in suspense, and we're not to know what has become a Bond, only that M's reputation has been damaged in all of the conflict as well. We do have a lot of M here, and it really is kind of nice to see Judy Dench stretch her legs a little bit. It's been a while since we've seen that, since The World is Not Enough, but here already in these two scenes in the beginning, she gets much more to use than she did in The World is Not Enough. I started doing some math. Does she tie the longest running bond with her number of M's? This is her, what, seventh movie as M, and it's been 17 years? Right. The guy who played M from Dr. No all the way to Moonraker, that's more movies. Yeah, a lot more. It's a little less years. She might have years, but she has less movies because of the gap. What's funny is Judy Dench has just always been old to me. And so she hasn't aged a day in 20 years. She's as old in Skyfall as she was in Goldeneye in my mind. But yeah, I do always like Judy Dench. I had some problems in The World Is Not Enough with a try to force her in more, I felt. But during these scenes, it felt very natural because it's coming out of that first scene. She screwed up. She made bad calls. She caused... Two agents to die. The one in that flat is dead and Bond is presumably dead. And they lost the hard drive beyond it, which is probably the bigger failure from Mallory's point of view. I thought she looked old. I don't agree with you. I think, yes, she's always been old as well to me. But here I actually saw her physically look older. It's a conscious choice. They photographed her to show every wrinkle. The camera work is accentuating the lines in her face to show how tired she is, how much this job has worn on her. Absolutely. But in addition to that, she's also physically looks older. <laughs> yeah. Now, both of you have mentioned World is Not Enough, and I'm so glad because I really was having intense flashbacks to that movie again and again, watching this story. From the starting off in Turkey, Istanbul, having a great chase scene there, and the fact that the storyline is built around someone trying to get revenge on M for the past. The whole explosion of MI6 is very, very similar here. I really do feel like that might have been the blueprint for what they're doing here, but I liked World is Not Enough almost. I'm so glad that I'm liking it so much better here. I feel like, <laughs> wow, I may never actually go back to that movie after I said I might revisit it because I'm just liking the way that the storytelling, it's just so much cleaner now that we're in the hands of greater filmmakers. Yes, but because of all these reminiscings of other movies and the way that it's put together here, even though I'm agreeing with you that Mendez does a really great job with carriage work and things like that, I think here is the second time in the movie for me that it shows its hand a little bit too early. The thing with M here when she talks to Ray Fiennes, I had a prediction this early in the movie that she was going to die at the end. Yep. And I knew she was going to die in the field. And so I think that Mendez, even though he has all these great themes going on, all these great character work, much like in the beginning scene when he showed us the backhoe on the train, I knew instantly that was going to be used as a bridge. It, just the way he's telegraphing himself, it happens throughout the movie. And while it didn't really take away too much for me, it just kept me in my head the entire time. And it was just a shame because I think the 
ending with her dying is supposed to be something big, and it's a big deal for a James Bond movie, but I got it in, what, the first reel. I wonder how many other people got it that early. I knew she was dead, and I agree, Brock. By selling us with the fatalism so much, by starting with the death at the beginning, and Sam Mendes really shaping this in a way that feels like a classic drama, I knew it would end with a death. I knew that she had to die, really. It's set up right here. She's being fired, and she has two more months to work out the job, and she declares that she's not going to leave until the job is done. Well, I think I know what that means. What I'm curious to know is how her legend can pass on. And I won't say that I knew exactly where everything was going to come together at the end, but I did have a strong suspicion that, yes, this was Judy Dench's last foray with 007. I was completely blown away by the fact that they killed her. I thought this thing was going to be the usual, you screwed up, you're going to lose your job, and end with her being redeemed through the help of James. I thought that Ray Fiennes was here as the bureaucratic pain in the ass that we've seen so many times. I mean, when I see Ray Fiennes, he's usually playing a bad guy, be it the Tooth Fairy in Red Dragon, or when he's in Harry Potter. So... I just figured he was there to be another enemy. They'd be fighting it on two fronts, the internal bureaucracy and the enemy, and it would end with status quo. So, no, I did not get that here. I agree. Every time I see Ray Fiennes, I think he's going to be bad. Arnie and Miss Schindler's list in that list, but okay. <laughs> Voldemort's pretty bad, too. And uh, <laughs> I actually thought he was in on it the entire time. So the ending of the movie when he becomes the new M, that makes sense especially after the scene that comes later on, but I thought he was in on it for most of the movie. I think that that is one of the lovely surprises about really the end of this film. There are several little moments that just pop, pop, pop right at the end. And one of them is that, of course... He's the new M. Mallory, of course it's this guy. But we have been so sure that he is a bad guy because he is the one that's firing him, that tells Bond when he comes back that he's lost a step and he's too old for the job. He's an antagonist. We aren't going to like him naturally. So it's so nice the way they give him an action scene, injure him, humble him, and have him turn around and be the guy we want to see give Bond orders next time. I think that that is one of the really neat things about the way the story comes together. I like old Judy Dench M, and I'm looking forward to Ray Fiennes M. I think both have something to offer. I like Ray Fiennes in this movie. I like his character, and while I've liked what Judy Dench did for all of the James Bond movies, I don't know why I can ever fault a Judy Dench performance in any movie. I agree. I like that they give Mallory this backstory, that they give him an evolution of character and how we view the character and his relationship with Bond during the later shootouts. I am looking forward to seeing that character grow in later movies. Now, they've clearly stepped out of continuity here. It should be said that we'll learn eventually that M worked formerly in Hong Kong back in 97 during the transfer from British control to Chinese control, the exact same period of time that Tomorrow Never Dies set, a movie in which she co-starred. So clearly, with that move, they are now saying that the Daniel Craig trilogy is, in fact, in no way related to anything they've done before. This is a complete reboot. If there were any lingering question marks, that's all gone now, right? We accept that this is a Bond series that is only three episodes in. Absolutely. But also, Stuart, I'm glad you brought continuity up, because in the first 
James Bond, Daniel Craig adventure, Daniel Craig drops a line, I thought M was a randomly assigned letter. I didn't realize it, and then she interrupts him. So here, when Craig calls him M at the end, where does that come from? If it's assigned per person. Mallory. It comes from Mallory. I guess. Whatever her name was. Emma. They give her a name. I like the fact that we finally get a name. You had actually said that in World is Not Enough, Brock, about how you felt like it was appropriate for people with personal vendettas to finally use first name basis with Judy Dench. Well, we get it. It's Emma. Is it Emma? Yeah. Because I know that the groundskeeper at the end of the movie calls her Emma, but I thought he misunderstood when James introduced her as M. I thought she died without a name. I didn't take it that way. I thought that we finally got to know a little bit more of the real person. I like my way, but... <laughs> I agree with Arnie. I thought he just misunderstood, like, because an old man, he called her Emma because he didn't get it, because he didn't know what Bond does for a living, right? But I haven't been able to confirm that anywhere online. Yeah, I actually looked online, and I have not found anywhere where that was noted as her name, and the only person who said it is the groundskeeper. And I think he just misunderstood M or thought M was short for Emma. I don't think we know her name. Well, that may be, but call her whatever you want. I think the name that really sticks for her is Mum. All the boys call her Mum, Mum this. And it sticks out to me because, you know, I'm not English. That's not something I would call someone ever. But it really does set the relationship here between M and her spies. She really does feel like a mother figure, a tough love mother figure here. And the fact that these parental things are going to play out all the way to the end, I really kept thinking of her as mom in this movie. I like the way that they've expanded that role, and we really see in these next few scenes, when Bond comes back, it feels like a prodigal son coming home, but with a big chip on his shoulder. But if she is the mother figure, I have to ask, this is obviously something fostered, and maybe to endear more trust that these people would walk into death for mum but i'm always wondering how much of it is reciprocal because she does order eve to take the shot knowing bond could and does get tagged she constantly is ordering people to their death she always is putting the mission first when she does die at the end she's like well i did one thing right and that's implying that she had one good child one good agent that being james but really i don't see her as a loving mother i see her as using that image to get people to die for her majesty that's certainly how silva sees it and i think he dies seeing that way but that moment i think the thing that she's really glad about is the fact that she falsifies his records. You know, when James Bond comes back into this picture, he's been partying up, drinking with scorpions, having the lovely beach life, hears about MI6 bombing, comes back, he re-enlists, and that means going through a battery of tests that he fails. It's only because M rigs it that he can keep his job and continue on in the mission. I think that that's what that death scene is really confirming, that she did right, and I think it's a way of validating that she knew that he could do it, that she never lost faith. He's mad at her because he assumed that she didn't think he could finish the job on his own. That it required Moneypenny to take a shot in order to get that database back. When in fact, he felt like, if you give me enough time, I would have gotten it off from around his neck. And why does he come back? Loyalty to mom? I got that he saw that he was needed, and everyone in the reserves has to come back out and help out now. It was something about the queen and country more than her. But he went to her to come back. 
I think that there might have been a part of him that wanted to confront her. You know, I think that there was a part of him that was burning to know why she let him take that shot. That You could just see the sting in his face. You know, he's not coming back hugging and embracing, and neither is she, for that matter. The scene plays really cold and funny because it's so cold. She's just buried six guys that blew up at the top of the building and walks in and there he is in shadow. She barely allows herself of the tiniest of smirks. She's totally relieved that one of her men has survived, that she hasn't killed them all. But she's not going to show it here. And I do think it's really curious the way that these people love each other and hate each other. To me, it really does feel like a very combative, dysfunctional, but loving mother-son relationship. Very British. I do think you are onto something that he wanted to confront her, and the way he confronted her being pissed drunk doing it helps your theory there. And I think he came back more for the country and the mission because it needed him more than her. But yes, I think he did confront her on it. See, I think that this movie is about M. It's not about the country. It's about these people's loyalty to M. Later on, when Bond and Silva have their first face-off and they're sparring verbally... Bond is defending M and saying, M never lied to me. I think he came back for M. I don't think he came back for the job. If it was for the country, he would have come back earlier. Yeah, it's not the country that's in jeopardy. Let's look at what's happening here. On YouTube, every week, six NATO agents get outed as MI6 spies. That's all that happens. All that is is a threat to British security operations, but it isn't a direct threat to the citizens of England. I mean, ultimately, of course, these things domino. It obviously could be very, very bad for London if these people are captured, tortured, give up secrets. But by and large, the immediate threat is to the agents and to M's reputation. That's the people that are targeted. I think that's what Bond is back to fight for, his brethren and his mom. I see both your points, and it certainly does make sense and certainly goes along with some of the themes of the movie. That's just not what I saw. So Bond literally has to kind of tear out his heart here for the job. You know, he's put through the battery of tests and gets rigged and he passes. And so they're going to put him on a mission. What does he extract from his wound? What is this uranium shell? Where did it come from? I missed this, I guess, in all the flurry of the opening. It's a bullet fragment. The bullet that he was shot with when he was shot in that crane fragmented. You know, there are these bullets that fragment to do more damage inside instead of just being a lead ball inside of you. Okay. And I took it as he was having trouble at the target range. He can't pull the gun up as fast because the shrapnel in his arm is still hurting him. So I didn't even realize he was taking out a clue. I thought he was cutting into himself to finally heal himself of that bullet wound he sustained during the opening scene. But no, it also happens to be a very special bullet that can be traced to this guy and they already know where he's going. Ah, that's kind of a holdover from the Moore years, isn't it? The convenient clue that makes really no sense when you look at it, but hey, it gets us to the next location. Well, actually, it's a callback to the woman who had the belly button bullet. Oh, man with the golden gun. Yeah, the golden bullet. Yeah. That's how I took it as a callback to. So it definitely wasn't the shot that Money Penny put in him because I was like, why would that be helpful to the case? It's that shot that Patrice put in that happened so fast. I really didn't notice it. Yeah, that's the shot that did the damage. From what I can tell, Eve's bullet never hurt him. That's one of the reasons I asked if he was shot with a sandbag. <laughs> I never see a scar. I never see a hole. Everything is Patrice's bullet. Okay. And for whatever reason, he only uses bullets that two other guys do in the world and whatever. I don't care. It's on to Shanghai and I'm ready to go, particularly when it's being photographed by the amazing 
DP Roger Deakins. Oh my God. When we get to Shanghai, this is when I know that we are watching the most visually sumptuous, best photographed Bond movie ever. Ever. We've seen some good ones. Casino Royale was very good, but yeah, Shanghai is beautiful. These scenes, all of this with him coming up. I love not just the angles and the colors, but the use of lighting in these scenes is astounding. I agree completely. The visuals here in every sense, during the action scene, even when he's just driving into Shanghai and those in the beautiful cityscape with all the neon lights, it's absolutely gorgeous. People are talking that Skyfall deserves the Oscar for Best Picture. I'm not necessarily going to say that's true, but I will be irate if Roger Deakins doesn't finally win his well-deserved Oscar. After a career of shooting Coen Brothers movies, this man is one of the most talented visualists there is out there, and this is maybe his most beautiful film in his whole repertoire. This scene in this tower, when Bond goes to kill Patrice, and the neon reflecting off all of the panes of glass in this empty office is actually providing cover, and this kind of weird catacomb, really, leading him towards the sniper. This stuff is incredible. I mean, I've never seen anything like this. I also really love the score of this movie, and this is the scene where I noticed it the most. The kind of electronic beats as Bond is following him through the streets and everything. The music in this just really is enhancing the film. It's electronic without being annoying, which is a feat that Goldeneye didn't pull off. Exactly. They did it right. And even though I love Goldeneye, the electronic stinks. But I got to tell you something. They also put a nice Middle Eastern flavor in that turkey opening scene, which I loved. And when they brought back the bombastic James Bond theme when they drove the Aston Martin, they were all over the place musically. But for this movie, it completely worked. Yep. No complaints on any of the music. The fight between the two of them in silhouette is just amazing amazingly filmed, but also amazing choreography. You're able to get stunt doubles there because you can't see the face and just have them fight it out. And normally when you try to do this kind of artistic fight scene, it takes me out of it. It makes it less exciting. I am more into the visuals than I am into the action and it becomes a very disconnected thing. I'm enjoying it on a different level and not as viscerally. But here, the action was so real that I had a visceral thrill while also finding it very aesthetically pleasing. We also get some amazingly great character and plot stuff. How about when he jumps on the elevator and has trouble hanging on? We've never seen James Bond have trouble hanging on. Roger Moore at age 57 was able to pull himself up on a bridge going up in San Francisco. This Daniel Craig at early 40s was having trouble hanging on because of how he's not ready to come back into it. How about the three people standing there when Patrice snipes the guy? The three people don't even blink an eye. Clearly, they're all in on it. So much going on in the scene besides just visuals. Yeah, and it's a frame within a frame within a frame. We're watching Bond watch, Patrice watch through his scope, these people in the other building through the window as he's watching a painting being unveiled. There's so many boxes within boxes. It's just a beautiful moment. Just as a work of art, just as a visually put together piece of entertainment, I am blown away by this movie. I, shot after shot, particularly the stuff in China, both here in the Shanghai High Rise and the Macau Casino, I just think are some of the most beautiful images I've seen in years. His approach to the casino was certainly visually stunning, but once we got into the casino, it felt like a James Bond casino set to me. But that's so dark. I can't remember the last time I've seen such a smoky dark. It just felt like they were capturing it by candlelight. The visuals just blow me away here. I love it. You're right. 
in many ways, this is just a classic casino set. He's been in casinos probably 90% of the movies that he's been in. But this may be my favorite casino scene. This one has got a luster to it. It's really just all about the DP work here. It's all about the camera. I'm just so impressed with it. And I like the Komodo dragons, too, I gotta admit. (laughs) I actually, when I saw the Komodo dragons, the way they presented them, again, thought he tipped his hand. Because I knew clearly they were going to have a fight in that pit. And it wasn't just there for ambiance or because it's in Shanghai. I just can't believe that he presented the Komodo dragons so blatantly. Brock, do you feel like every movie should be a continual act of surprise? I feel like that's part of the fun that you, yeah, show a pit of Komodo dragons. Of course they're going to end up there. How are they going to end up there? It's the anticipation of them getting into there. Of course, we all know they're going to go there. That's the fun of the scene. What I mean by that, Stuart, is, and yes, in James Bond films, they certainly do set up things like, say, a piranha tank, and then we know someone's going in the piranha tank eventually. What I'm saying is this movie is going for something so much bigger. But when they tip their hand about how I know they're going to use that backhoe as a bridge, how I know they're going to have M get killed in the field early on, how I know the Komodo dragon is there for not just for decoration in this amazing casino, which it very well could be, but no, I knew they were going to have a fight in that pit. I just feel that some of these things are not laid in as organically for the clever movie that we're watching everywhere else. I like foreshadowing. I like anticipation. I like what they're doing here. I had no complaints about that at all. Yeah, and I do feel like it works for this one. It may not work for everyone, maybe one built more on a mystery. But for this one, that sort of sense of inevitability about the fatalism of these things, the fact that these things are destined to happen, it's almost thematic, really. It's the movie that Sam Mendes wanted to make, whether or not it's the kind of style that you want in James Bond. I'll agree with you. This is a different approach than a lot of directors take towards the material. And... We do kind of have a mystery here. We still don't know who the attacker is at this point in the movie. And I'm very curious at this point in the movie, who is it? And he's walking into the casino, and I'm like, we've seen a lot of movie at this point. We're like an hour into the movie. This has to be the scene where the villain reveals himself, right? The villain's, of course, hanging out at a casino, but it's not. I'm not focused on the Komodo dragon, because I'm enjoying, the again, the cinematography, the way the kinetic camera movement while Bond is talking to Eve through the earpieces, and she just flits in and out of the frame. I'm not focused on the fact that, yes, obviously a fight's going to go to the Komodo Dragons. I'm more focused on who is the bad guy, what is he up to, what is really going on in this plot, not in this scene. And you're right about the movement of the scene with him and Eve. It's great stuff. And how can you not look at Severine? She's gorgeous, and that woman has some presence going for her. I really liked her in the scene. Okay, I think we can agree here, right? Craig wins. Hottest women ever. This is three (laughs) movies in a row where they have been jaw-on-the-floor stunners. Vesper, Cassie, the last movie, and this chick. It's just amazing. Now, some of it is, of course, they're helped by incredible production cost and design and this incredible cameraman, but Craig wins here. He wins. Ugliest Bond, hottest women. (laughs) (laughs) That makes it even sweeter somehow for him. I still think Timothy Dalton's the worst-looking Bond, but that's my opinion. Yeah, I'm with you. Those ears. <laughs> in, in the opening credits, did you not notice the silhouette of the ears? That's all I noticed. Question for you. Now, we had pretty much agreed that Lois Maxwell never banged Bond, that it was a constant flirtation, that she would sit and see him look up from her desk, make a remark, listen to in on his sex talk, but they themselves never met up after work for a drink and a snog. They never did that, right? 
So did Eve and Bond meet up for a snog here in Macau? I had the same question, and I'm leaning towards no, because it's Money Penny, and because she lives. <laughs> Good point. She would be the yeah. first girl. Well, counting that nameless girl on the beach, she would be the first character to have done so, which would mark her for death. Right. And of course, Severine does sleep with Bond and she does get killed. So there you go if you want to go with the Bond formula. But, you know, the Craig movies haven't necessarily been slaves to the formula. Right. They have certainly played with it. So I got the impression they did sleep together. We'll never know. I do think in this day and age, if they did sleep together with that one night thing, they can have that flirtation based on something else as opposed to just never going through with it. Now it's based on we had that one fling, but never on screen did we get that information. I think it's intentionally left ambiguous so that we can make up our own stories and play the character the way that we want. I assumed it had to have happened when I didn't know that this was Money Penny, but after the end twist, I was like, oh wait, no they didn't. They couldn't have. They can't break that. To me, that can never happen. And I kind of started to figure out she was Money Penny a bit before that very last scene. When she showed up with Mallory in the courtroom scene, I felt I knew the way the wind was blowing. They kept talking about her possibly taking another field position or taking a desk job. But I was never sure about them having sex. It really feels like that scene should have ended with them having sex. But yeah, the film leaves it ambiguous. I guess we have to wait for the next one. Right, right. It's sweeter if they didn't, though, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess because we all have a history with the character, absolutely. But finally, he gets to this island, and we finally get our villain, and it's Fred Armiston! Who's that? From Saturday Night Live. (laughs) I don't know who that is. It is a spitting image of how Javier Bardem looks in that way. Oh, okay. Well, I got two strong impressions from what Javier Bardem is doing in this movie, and it's not from Saturday Night Live. (laughs) I definitely feel, like, just because of the way the character is written, as someone that has been leaking topical information, he's Julian Assange, right? He's that European, the the hair, all of that kind of thing. I was definitely getting a Julian Assange vibe mixed with Heath Ledger's Joker. This is where the movie really shows us, if I hadn't been getting a Nolan vibe up to this point, that last casino set kind of looked like it came out of Inception. Well, this right here, it's just straight up Heath at this point. Oh, I definitely had some Dark Knight callbacks. First of all, the pacing and the overall emotion of this film took me there. Also, though, when he's with Severin, she asks, how much do you know about fear? And he goes, all there is, not like this, not like him. And I'm taken right back to like the scarecrow, the fear. This whole film, I will say, feels very Nolan. And Nolan likes Bond. I mean, we saw the end of Inception. But in this film, I'm getting now Bond doing Nolan. And yeah, this is our Joker. I later on, though, also get shades of Hannibal Lecter from him. I mean, we get later on the scene with him in the glass cage and his psychological games and his escape. I see him as like Hannibal Lecter plus Ralph Fiennes Tooth Fairy with that whole mouthpiece. I actually got Magneto from that cage, (laughs) honestly. And I, of course, got the Joker as well. There's no way you can't, especially his grand plan back in Mike 6. When he's in the cage, the whole thing's a setup, wanting to get captured. I mean, how can you not think the Joker? It's impossible. But here in the first scene, when you first see him, yes, you do get the Joker. Just they hit it home a couple of scenes from now. Yeah. Although I don't remember the Joker hitting on Batman. (laughs) They have some interplay, but it didn't feel so sexualized here. That's certainly one of the ways they love to rib and taunt us here. It's a great introduction. I mean, my God, 70 minutes build up to this mysterious phantom character. Everyone who knows who he is ends up dead, and we're finally going to see him, and they do it in a long shot. 
a real long shot, a shot that takes a really long monologue for him to walk out of the elevator and come into focus. The time that it takes for him to slowly strut and up there, we're hanging on every word because we want to see this guy and he is loving taking his time. They've hit it out of the park with the way that they delivered this introduction. He couldn't have had a better assist in the way he comes into the picture. Not only that, Stuart, not only is it a long shot, it's one take. And in the beginning of it, when he's really far away, I wasn't really liking the line reading all that much, the first couple of sentences. And as he was coming towards us, and more and more and more, I actually had this moment of, oh, wow, look what he's doing. I mean, the acting there was brilliant. And it took him coming towards the screen for me to totally be taken in by him. So by the time he gets there, right there face to face with Daniel Craig, he has me. And it's exactly the same way they introduced Craig at the start of the movie. I'm kind of with you, Brock, in that when he came in, I didn't think I was liking what he was doing. The accent, the line readings, it just seemed all very frivolous and like he was in a different movie than the rest of them. It took more than him walking across the screen. It was probably the scene where they kill Severine that I finally realized that he is absolutely pitch perfect. He was jarring when he walked in. I'm like, this isn't a my six agent? <laughs> I'm Really? I, I don't think so. I primarily know this actor from No Country for Old Men, where he played the ultimate badass. And so I knew he was the villain in this going in because of pre-release information. I'm expecting him to play the ultimate badass, and that's not what I am getting in the first scenes here. He's not this tough asshole that he was in No Country for Old Men, but then he just gets you. He gets you with his stories. This is a movie that plays on monologues. Bond has one, M has one, and Silva has one. And each one, again, kind of like a Nolan film, it feels weighty and it feels like a soliloquy, but by the same token, it's being performed so well by these three great actors in these three leads that it, you can't help but get lost in the beauty of the words. I actually wish this monologue were a little bit better. I'm actually going to ding the writing on this one. This is the first time where I felt like the scripting, not so great. This whole story about rats following into a coconut barrel and how it's a metaphor for all the spies that have died and how these last two rats are Bond and Silva going at each other. Oh, I love that. It's a little on the nose, don't you think? He clearly didn't ever see this. This is clearly not a story that ever happened. This is like, I'm going to create a fable in which I describe the way I see MI6. I didn't like the monologue. Sorry. I thought he delivered it great. And I love the way that he flirts and hits on Bond when he finally gets to him. I think what Bardem is doing is fun. I don't think the monologue's great. My audience went, oh, when Bardem touched Bond's legs. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then when he gives it right back to him and says, what makes you think it's my first time? I had to laugh. I think everyone was laughing at that one. No one was expecting it. Exactly. Why go there with it in this case, though? It seemed frivolous. It didn't seem to have a purpose. Well, if you listen over at Books and Nachos, I'm covering the last Bond book, Man with the Golden Gun. I think there's a little bit of that literary scaramanga in this character here. That character was sort of a bisexual flirt who used his aggression to get on with Bond. It's something that is Fleming-esque that they haven't used, that they 
could do here. And who knows? Uh, Bardem could have come up with all of this and thought that it would have been fun. I don't know. Why is Severin even with him? I don't understand. He's clearly only half into her and clearly setting her up to be killed here in this next scene. I would have liked to have known how she got mixed up with this cat. We're kind of told that that was what I thought of as one of Bond's monologues was back in the casino talking about out from a tattoo on her wrist. He can suss out her entire life story. Right, kind of like Vesper did to him in that conversation they had on the train in Casino Royale. Only less subtle. Yeah, but we don't also get why she's like shakingly scared of Javier Bardem. Well, because he's going to kill her. (laughs) That William Tell scene, I think, is just fantastic. And the reason I love it so much is because we were talking earlier about how sometimes setups in this movie, for me, were labored. Here's a great setup. Bond's aim is completely off. We know he's not the same marksman he used to be. And now he's put to a test to shoot the shot of scotch off of her head. And we all think she was going to get shot by Bond by mistake, like a quick of the dead kind of thing. (laughs) What a great way to build up tension naturally in this movie. I knew she was dead. I couldn't say by whose bullet, but I knew she was not walking away from this scene. (laughs) True. By the way, did you guys catch the vintage on the scotch? No. 1962. Ah. Awesome. And then Bond, of course, misses completely. And then Javier Bardem, does he even look at her when he shoots her? <laughs> it was awesome. Yeah, I felt really bad for Serene there. She's beaten before she's ever tied up there. Bond, I thought he was going to kill her because he had bad aim. One of the people trying to protect him shot him. And I could see that then being paid forward in that way. And the whole thing with the uh, new invention radio, what a great button for that scene. Funnier still, because we didn't talk about the scene where Bond talks to Q, but Q's like, we don't do exploding pens anymore. The gadgets Q gives Bond, the first time we've seen Q in this rebooted Bond-verse, yeah, his gadgets are kind of lackluster. It's a gun with a palm reader and a radio. This is what I mean about a Bond that is looking at what it's done and selectively picking its favorite things and moving on. They're not going to do those crazy gadgets. They announce with this new cue and these gadgets that they're going to keep it pretty plain. Those that treated Die Another Day with the invisible car as a pox on the franchise can breathe a big sigh of relief. They're never going to do that in this Craig era. That's just not what Mendes is interested in cultivating and keeping. Sure, and I love the line, it wouldn't do that exploding pen thing anymore, and yet the Aston Martin's tricked out later in the movie, right? It's not invisible, Brock. It's not tricked out the way that they can be. I don't get, if this is a new rebooted universe, where did this Aston Martin come from? When was it used? Well, it's from the first movie, Casino Royale, but somewhere in between there, it has all the Goldfinger accoutrements. Yeah, the ejection seats. I mean, they even mentioned that specific ejection seat that he used in Goldfinger. Right, which told me later on that there was going to be machine guns there, again, with the telegraphing. But the ejector seat line was really funny for the Bond fans. But think about it. If Q says we don't do that sort of thing anymore, when did they stop? Last year? (laughs) <laughs> the year before last? They stop with Die Another Day. They're reassuring people what the parameters are. They've constructed the fence, and we will go no further than this. We will have these kinds of gadgets. We will have this kind of car. We will not do sci-fi. We will not do things that have no basis in contemporary material reality. So we could still have a car that can turn into a submarine. I don't know. Do they do that? In The Spy Who Loved Me. No, no. I mean, do they do that now? Is there a car that could turn into a submarine? Do they have a car that has machine guns and the grill? I'm sure that they do. I'm sure that there is a car with guns (laughs) in it. In fact, it may even be in my neighborhood. Have you been to L.A.? (laughs) 
<laughs> touche, Stuart, touche. Pimp my ride. <laughs> so Q is back at the new MI6 headquarters. He's trying to crack Silva's laptop. What we find out is that this was all part of Silva's plan. It actually unleashes a bug that hacks MI6. And that even though we think Silva has been taken prisoner, he's actually just waiting for his exit. And he was waiting for his reunion with M in what I think is the best scene of the movie. Is him in that plastic cage, confronting M, trying to get her to say his real name, showing her the damage, telling her what happened to him in the hands of the Chinese. That scene... You forget anybody else is in the room except Javier Bardem. Certainly was shocking when he pulled out his teeth, and he seemed pathetic and hurt, and at the same time, you just got the menace off him. It was just remarkable range of emotions there, and a wonderful performance by him in that scene, absolutely. And you could see the two other actors watching him. I just got the sense the two of them were just enjoying everything they were watching and just loving playing off of that. Okay, so what happened to him? He had cyanide in a tooth, and he bit it. And that happened to his face? It didn't kill him. It burned his insides and destroyed all of his teeth. But unfortunately, the cyanide didn't kill him, so he's disfigured. And he's just one denture away from, like, looking like that? I thought it was a weird scene. I liked what Bardem was doing. I thought it was a weird moment. The fact that they go to that CGI disfigurement thing is... I can't say I loved it maybe as much as you did, Arnie, but it's certainly a striking moment. Here's the thing. When they took out the teeth, that was the end of the scene. And that part, I can't say I necessarily loved. I loved his performance. I loved his speech. When he takes out the teeth and, yeah, gets the CGI face, I gotta wonder why they did that. I mean, it does make him monstrous. It did take me back to the Tooth Fairy from Manhunter, but... It doesn't play into anything at all. Is it to give the reality of the cyanide? It doesn't look scary because of the CGI on his face. That did strike me as odd. To me, it went along with the crying blood. Bond villains having that. Usually it's the henchman has those weird kind of things to them. We talked about before the webbed hands. The guy in Spider Love Me had that little subtle thing there going. I think it plays very well. I actually liked it a lot. But we talked about this earlier, though. It's the Joker again with the whole plan. And if I hadn't just seen that in The Dark Knight four years ago, I maybe have been a bit more surprised here. Again, though, I think it plays here so well, it doesn't matter. And it makes sense. I like that Bond was the first one to figure it out, too. It would mean that they'd have to know that when they blew up MI6 the first time, that they were going to relocate to this Churchill bunker. He would have to be so far ahead here. It strains a little bit of credibility for me. I accept it because I get that he's Joker. But you know what? He's not as good as Joker. This is not as well-written a Joker as what Heath Ledger got to play with, even though I think Bardem is giving a parallel performance. Stuart, they actually call that out in the movie, I thought, that they... They said he must have done the whole thing to set us up down here. He knew exactly what he was doing. Like, and that's how far ahead he planned, and that's how meticulous he is. And so, again, he planned it so far ahead that he's able to blow up the train above his head. Yeah, my question is, are you buying it? I'm buying it more as a Bond movie at this point than I am a really smart, believable, plausible Nolan movie. They just push a little too hard. Him falling off the train and living this... I relocated the whole office down here so I knew that I could take the subway to M's hearing. Some of this really... It's more spy thrills. It's less good, plausible drama. It's a mix of old Bond and new Bond. Exactly. This movie keeps hitting us over the head with the old ways can still work. The old ways should not be counted out. And this is another great example of an old-fashioned Bond coming into a new era Bond. I think it completely works that way. But I got to tell you, I got a little tired of them hitting me over the head with it. (laughs) (laughs) I never felt it was heavy-handed. 
I just felt like it was omnipresent. Yeah, I'll go with Arnie. You sense it, it's all there, but it doesn't feel overly there. I didn't resent any particular line reading where they say that. I mean, M gives a big speech here. In parallel, while this chase with the underground and the subway cars and all that is happening, M is really giving a defense to her whole administration and why we still need MI6, ergo James Bond as well, in this day and age. Why there is still value to fighting in the shadows, because it's out of the shadows that these things come. This is M's biggest moment, I think, where she really has to make the case for why she should keep her job. And while she's giving that, Bond is chasing Javier through the tunnel, and they really try to interject some humor here that we hadn't seen in quite a while. Q kind of telling Bond where to go. Q is just by nature a more light-hearted character, so he's making jokes like, it's the tube during rush hour, something you'd know nothing about, little lines like that. And then they do the callback to the radio when the subway crashes in on Bond in there. Again, a little bit too convenient that the train would just be going at that time, at that angle to where Bond's standing. But it's a fun chase. I'm having a good time with it. And I'm liking that M is so staunch in her defense that even though she knows she should get into hiding, she's going to sit there and read her Tennyson poem. I just couldn't help thinking about that bus crashing through the bank joke at the beginning of Dark Knight when that train came down. I was just like, you know, this movie is the same distance from Quantum of Solace as it is from Dark Knight. And I dare say they probably took more from Dark Knight than they did from Quantum of Solace here. You can't argue with that. You're both making fantastic points, and it plays very well for the movie. But if you think about it for a second, yeah. But it's, again, the James Bond fantastical elements of it, and it's part of the fun of this chase scene. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, I love Nolan. I'm fine with Bond going on that trend. He's always a trend jumper. Jump on Nolan. I think that Dark Knight is a fantastic movie and not a bad one to emulate at all. I'm only just bringing it up because it's the kinds of things that are reminding me why maybe this one isn't as surprising as Casino Royale for me, where I felt I was in constant rediscover of the characters and the repartee and all of that. I was just so enchanted with Casino Royale. They're closer to Casino Royale here than they are to Quantum of Solace, but I still got to say, at this point in the movie, it's when I know Casino Royale's got them beat. This movie, as good as it is, is not keeping pace with the first Craig. See, and I disagree. I think that while I do feel they're cribbing on Nolan, I don't think that's a detriment because they are still continuing to explore characters. Yes, they're taking beats from The Dark Knight and they're taking tone from everything Nolan ever touched, but... They're doing it in this James Bond way with this motif of aging and parents and sibling rivalry and rats eating each other. And because of the character exploration we're getting here, this is working for me. In The World Is Not Enough, I had a real problem with M being brought in as a character and taken hostage. Here it's working for me because M's basically the next Bond girl, isn't she? We only have Severin and then after that, there's no more Bond girl. M is the Bond girl. And so it works for me because it's not an additional player in the dynamic. And the interplay between Bond, M, and Silva is just completely drawing me in in a way that I never got with Vespa. That romance, it, if you go back to that podcast, it didn't work as well for me as it did for you guys. Whereas here, this is all playing very well, hitting on all cylinders. And if you're going to rip off a movie, rip off a great one. Dark Knight's a good way to go, but they're putting such a James Bond spin on it that I don't think it's obvious to absolutely everybody. It's not too direct, in my opinion. 
Clearly, everyone's not being fooled by it, Arnie, because a lot of people are claiming this movie is the greatest Bond movie ever made. But I could not stop thinking about all these things while watching this movie. Perhaps because I've seen The Dark Knight so many times that it was a little more obvious to me than maybe to other people. Yeah, I just felt like maybe I had seen it before, whereas Casino Royale felt like one I'd never seen before. When we get this gun battle in the courthouse and M and Mallory are ducking, it kind of felt like the moment where Gordon got shot. In lots of ways, there was a deja vu effect. That's all I'm saying, and it doesn't feel as fresh. That shootout in the courtroom, though, had some amazing touches, how Bond kicks the gun to Moneypenny, well, Eve at this point, and also with Ray Fiennes jumping to get a gun. That was an awesome moment. Love that. And then the smoke screen. The whole thing played out really, really fun for me. Clever things going on, but nice character moments as well. So the callbacks to other movies at this point, I didn't mind so much because I was having so much fun watching the shootout. And yeah, I didn't go back to Gordon being shot with this one, especially because M lived and I kind of wondered if she would. I thought that if she was going to die, I thought this would be the scene. So Bond had someone to avenge. That's exactly right. I did think that this was her death scene. It was a real surprise that she hangs around for the climax. Agreed. Especially after that speech. I mean, that's like a death speech, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, it is. It is exactly that. Reading poetry, bullet in the head is the next thing in these movies. (laughs) (laughs) People are coming after you. You're reading poetry. You know they're coming after you. You just want to die. What are you doing? Now, I know they've been leading us here. The themes of parental control, the themes of the past coming back for you. But there's one thing in this movie I genuinely don't like, and it's Skyfall. What a disappointment to find out what the title means and that they go here. I don't like this climax. Yeah, they'd even dropped Skyfall earlier in the movie when Bond was going through a psychological test. They did word association and, you know, M, bitch. It was a really good scene. It's in one of the trailers. And then they do Skyfall and he just freezes up and walks away. I expected something major. No, it's just his house. I thought it was a former mission, right? I thought it was a mission that would parallel what happened to Silva. I didn't have it worked out, but I was sure it was a code name, like Thunderball, Skyfall. Absolutely. I even went further. I thought it was a subliminal thing, like they were programming something into their agent's head, and it was triggering something or something like that. I I was really getting conspiracy theory when it was Skyfall, and he just freezes. No, it's just the f***ing house. I actually thought it was a former mission as well, that something failed, someone he cared about died, and we're going to find out about that because of the themes of the movie. The fact that it became Skyfall was very surprising to me. It was also very surprising to me because I never thought Bond had any money. And I don't know how Scottish houses work. Maybe this is a small house for people who live in the Scottish Highlands, but this seems to be like like an estate with a big driveway kind of pillar thing in the front and a lot of land and a big house. He's Bruce Wayne with Alfred waiting for him. I can't believe they make it this direct. Yeah, I knew Orphan from Casino Royale. They had that interplay with Vesper where we learned that they're both orphans. I was thinking Oliver Twist, somebody that came up through the state system who had not known parents, who had not known a good life until he went into the service. He looked like he was doing just fine here at this quote-unquote orphanage or whatever it is. What are we to understand that Kincaid has raised him, that this was his home? after his parents died and he just stayed here all the same? No, I got that he was there as a boy and after his parents died, he was taken away, but he maintained ownership of the estate. They have groundskeepers, so clearly they had money. Clearly he's not going into poverty here. Wherever he went, it was probably just as nice and plush. Well, I don't have answers for you from the movie standpoint, but 
reading the books, the obituary in the book of You Only Live Twice, they got the parents' names right. They used the same exact parents' names. But after his parents died in the climbing accident, as we learned in GoldenEye, that's right from the book, too. His father was in Vickers Armaments. He worked for that firm. That's just why I guess they had the gun collection in the house. But what gets me is when the parents get killed, he gets pushed off to go with an aunt. And his college education at Eton was already paid for. He was already accepted into that college because of who his father was. So the books also contradict it because earlier in Her Majesty's Secret Service, he talks about how he's never brought up with money and how he doesn't think that money buys you happiness. But it contradicts that with that obituary, and now the movie contradicts that as well. So it's kind of a big jumble. Skyfall, from what I understand in all the books that I've read, Skyfall is completely made up for the movie as far as I can tell. Has Bond always been Scottish? Well, no and yes. Obviously Connery, but beyond (laughs) that. Well, actually, because Connery took the role, You Only Live Twice was written after Connery had become Bond, and so Fleming wrote that into his backstory. So in the obituary of You Only Live Twice, it also talks about his Scottish heritage. So the answer is yes. And no, because before Connery took the role, it wasn't supposed to be that way. Yeah, I always thought he was the ultimate Brit. Now, Kincaid. I had to do some research on this one because this guy comes out and starts speaking a Scottish brogue. And I'm like, well, why the hell is that not played by Sean Connery? And they were afraid that if they'd gotten Sean Connery for the role, assuming they could get him out of his beach house because he hasn't left for years. But if they could have, it would have pulled people out of the movie. But I'm sorry, you bring this guy out and it's not Sean Connery. That pulled me out of the movie. Well, Alfred pulled me out of the movie completely. As Stuart said before, as soon as the guy was there, I thought Alfred the whole time. Regardless of who it is, the character pulls you out of the movie. But if they really wanted a former Bond, they could have done it. They could have had Moore do it. They could have had Dalton do it, even. Yeah, at this point, they are grandfatherly aged to Craig. Craig is younger now than when Moore started with Live and Let Die. So all of them could be a paternal figure to him. Yeah, but only Connery is Scottish. They're saying Moore can't pull the accent? Actually, I'm not sure he could. No, I don't think he can, yeah. <laughs> but Dalton could, I'm confident. Lazenby would be happy for the work, right? So, Oh, my God. I'm sure Lazenby can't do it. That I'm sure of. No acting feat there. But I'm not with this part of the movie. By making the parallels to Batman this direct, I wasn't jiving with this whole let's go to buy house thing and let's reenact Straw Dogs when Bardem's coming back with his goons. It's funny. You saw Straw Dogs. I saw Nightmare on Elm Street. I saw Home Alone and get this one, Crocodile Dundee 2. (laughs) You saw Crocodile Dundee 2. Yes, I did, because in the second one, they go back to the Outback to get away from the bad guys, and the Outbacks have to come to Crocodile's land and fight his way away from the big city and what they know. And here, they're taking the cyber terrorist who has everything all calculated in the city out into the country where he has nothing to work with, and they're using old-fashioned Home Alone stuff to beat him. Yeah, I kind of saw that. I was really hoping, though, that this was all going back to the story of the two rats, and the breadcrumb that Q was leaving was the coconut, and that we'd end up with the two rats in a barrel, and all the other rats would be dead until only the two rats were alive, and then would they eat each other, or would they eat everything else? I really thought it would go back to that. Javier never enters the barrel. His people enter the barrel. Other rats go in, but Javier just stands outside in a chopper. Well, I guess he understood his own story and what it meant. He's like, I'm not going in there. (laughs) It's certain death. (laughs) But I know what you mean. I did think that this was the moment where they close it all up and it's got to come down to Bond versus Silva. They can throw in all the dozens of goons they want. I don't believe these guys are going to do anything. Nail bombs? Did you like this? I mean, why did he go home if there were actually no weapons there? He actually thought there were weapons there. 
because he asked about the gun collection. And then he told me he sold it because when you were dead, they started selling things off in the estate. Yeah, couldn't he have gotten some more? That was a big mistake to be like, oh, we'll just make do with a pot of glue, some nails, and sawdust. Really, that's when you leave and go someplace that can be better protected. But they were laying the trap for Silver to find him there. So you're saying go out, get supplies at Walmart, and come back? Either that or go find another trap because it's a really bad idea to fight these guys with nail bombs. It seemed to work. (laughs) Yes. Imagine that. It all came together in the end. But I think you hear what I'm saying. This whole climax is a little bit too much for my taste. I like the movie. It's certainly not derailing the movie, but I can feel my enthusiasm throttling down in this sort of overdone climax. I'll agree and disagree in an equal measure here. I agree that my attitude was, well, we've passed two hours of this movie, and now we're at the big explosive climax that is nowhere near as interesting as everything else we've been watching up to this point. But I was still finding it exciting. It was just far more rote. Yeah, I really had this been there, done that feeling this entire third act. It's a shame, but they did it really well. Yeah, it's still largely because of the visuals and the stunts and the amount of money that they're just throwing up on screen. The helicopter going into the mansion, the fight under the ice, all of that is spectacular. I'm just saying the fact that this is the climax disappointed me. I didn't really like Skyfall. I really didn't like the idea that they're going to do this do-it-yourself fight back because they only have one sawed-off shotgun. The ending is lesser than the movie they've built up to. I kind of thought they were going for a more intimate ending because the movie is more intimate with the characters. I thought they did this very much on purpose. And I don't think it played as well because I did want something bigger for my buck at this point. I also thought, again, we talked about subtle and hammer over the head when Alfred or whatever his name is, Kincaid, comes in and says it always always the old-fashioned way and he throws the knife on the table. At that point, I'm like, okay, I get it, enough. The old-fashioned way, of course it's going to come into play later. Thank you for telegraphing that. And of course it did. Again, I, I could not escape this theme and how they were telegraphing so many things for me. Like the priest hole that goes out to the church. The way they laid it into the movie, yes, they had to get that exposition out, but that felt very exposition-y to me. They didn't find another way to give it to us. But you know what about that exposition that I liked is a lot of times in this movie, we see James Bond undergo a birth. I mean, when he gets knocked into the water at the beginning of the movie, that I took as almost a symbol of a type of birth, where we talked about this way back in First Blood, how when you take a character and you put them underwater, you put them in a tunnel, it's this like metaphor for metamorphosis, going into the cocoon, coming out of the womb, however you want to have it. So I took when he was in the water during the whole opening credits as a moment when when he came out, he was jaded, and he came out and he was he left the service, he went underground. Here, the caretaker is giving the story about when he told Bond that his parents died, Bond went down there for days, and when he emerged, he was no longer a boy. I mean, it's pretty literal, this is a cocoon place. When you go through here, when you come out, you are something different. And so when I know Bond is going to go through it again, and he emerges again... How will he have changed again? It's actually intriguing me from a character perspective. Yes, I totally agree. It is a Freudian way of looking at this, but I'm sure it was on the director's mind when they constructed it this way. It's why they chose to have the fight in this way rather than having it all inside the house with the barrel, as it were. We end it with the church next to the gravesite of his biological parents and the death of his metaphorical mom. And I really wondered how this was going to end when 
Bond is underwater. That scene underwater freaked me out again. I mentioned before I have a problem when characters go underwater like that. And I wasn't sure how he would get out. I like how he uses the flare to see the exit. I still worry how long he could have held his breath, especially in freezing cold water. Isn't he deaf now? I've seen It's a Wonderful Life. I know that's not good on the ears to fall through the ice. Come on! You saw what he lived through in Turkey. I mean, if he could go over that waterfall, he'll be totally fine. He could do laps. I think he'll be fine. But he wasn't even shivering when he came in the house. He was, I mean, I'm not sure if he was wet or not. I can't even tell. I don't remember. But yeah, it crossed my mind too, Arnie. Like, why isn't he cold? Why isn't he shivering? How did he get out of there? I mean, the flare is great, but did the flare break the ice? And how did he get out of that? Actually, isn't it hard to climb out of a hole in the ice? Is that the whole point? But yes, then they get there. And Silva is there with M, and he doesn't just want to kill M, he wants her to kill them both. And I realize all of a sudden, I'm loving him as a villain, but the Joker was just about menace for menace's sake. Silva, he's just kind of tortured and pathetic. He's the perhaps smallest-minded of all the Bond villains. Because we talked about with The World Is Not Enough again, how... The villain was a female, and it was a twist. She couldn't just want revenge against M. That was too small, so she also had to be greedy and want the oil pipeline. But Silva, no, it's just revenge against M, and he wants to die with her at that moment. And so, really, Bond is only fighting to protect M, which he fails to do. Well, what does Bond accomplish? Let's lock this through. He does kill the threat. He does have a final moment with her. He does allow her to go out in the job with dignity. But no, he doesn't save her life. So in that way, he fails. Sure. And he also proves that he is up to the task of still being a double O agent. Right. Which is what, again, I think she was implying when she said, at least I did one thing right. I flubbed your tests. I put you back in service, even though some people would say that's actually negligence and you're asking this man to get killed. No, it worked out. He is still as good as he ever was. It's also a little disappointing to me that at no point did Bond ever seem to flirt with going Silva's way. Silva's pointing out how M lied to him. Silva is showing a path that is rational. It makes Silva a great villain that he is sympathetic and you can see his side of it, but... The fact that Bond is just so loyal to M, even in the face of these facts, we're never given a why for that. Well, how would he break rank, particularly after this guy has killed so many of his colleagues? It's not just M, keep in mind. There are a lot of agents that are dead, and it's all because of this guy. Yeah, and that's part of what I was saying earlier, that I think he came back for not just M. I was thinking he came back for the whole institution. Yeah, that guy in the room that he wanted to stay with and help rather than go chase the laptop. Yeah. See, I just wish it was a little more clear because I really thought he came back for M. And what I see this as, this whole thing, is there is a evolution of the Bond character again. When the movie ends, we have a more determined Bond. It feels like every Craig movie, we say at the end, but now he is James Bond. And so I feel like, once again, I thought he was there after Quantum, and before that I thought he was there after Casino Royale, but now I feel that, well, I said when he goes through the tunnel again, what will he emerge as? And there's a lot of these allusions to parenthood in this that I've talked about. At this point, he's been very much a dependent child. He's very loyal to mom versus the rebellious teenager who rebels against mom. And 
the loss of M is something I don't think he could have taken. The loss of the parent. And this is about aging. And as part of aging, this movie becomes about the death of the parent and the child becoming a man. And it said when he came out, he was no longer a boy. When he comes out of that tunnel that last time, I think he is ready to realize he needs to stand on his own and not be so dependent on mom. We do once again get that feeling of the other two movies, and I had the exact same one, but now I think we already are going to get down to business. Because <laughs> also, don't forget, in this movie, his humor comes back. And that's something we haven't had from Daniel Craig in the last two movies, but it completely works here. So now we know he can do that element of the Bond character, too. They added that back in. So all those things combined at the end of this movie, I really do think the journey is now complete again. <laughs> for us for the next movie. Yeah, it's a weird little moment where we're ready for the movie to be over. M is dead and buried, and she leaves him the bulldog statue. I think that's it. That's a cute little ha-ha-ha. I really wasn't expecting that final scene where he comes down and realizes who his new team is. But there it is. Money Penny, Mallory, Q. Tanner's here. Okay, whatever. Who is this Tanner guy? I've never noticed him before. Has he been in other movies? Tanner has been in other movies, guys. I believe he was played by the African-American in the Pierce Brosnan movies. Uh, anyway, all of a sudden, I didn't realize it, but they've reinvented it two movies after the first reinvention. Or rather, maybe it's just he's fully formed now. Maybe it is fully ready to go and be the franchise it's going to be. Well, they brought back the door, right? The M's door. Yeah, they didn't have that before, right? That is back. It wasn't there in the previous ones. In the beginning of the movie, look at M's office. That incredible modern-style big glass windows, right? Now it's back to that small, claustrophobic, leather door, soundproof, two-door thing. So yes, I think we're all there, too. The M moment felt so right, and I loved how he acknowledges him as M. Acknowledgement of, we both know who we are. We both know our place here. Let's get to work. Loved it. You could feel the love in the theater, too. I mean, I was in a packed IMAX screening, people to the rafters, and everybody was just laughing and clapping at these final revelations. And then had the gun barrel sequence at the end. Again. Well, legitimate gun barrel sequence at the end with him shooting it, and then having the wonderful 50th anniversary acknowledgement and James Bond return right there. Love that. And I thought that was completely appropriate for the movie. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Skyfall? Stuart. Skyfall is everything it needed to be. Bond is rip-roaring back to exactly where he was with Casino Royale. I mean, this is going to be in my top five Bonds. I'll be releasing my entire list soon in the forums of the rankings of all the Bonds, and I think this one lands firmly in the top five. This is an excellent, excellent movie, filled with some of the best imagery I've seen in any movie. This is my plea to the Academy members. I don't care much about what you give your statues to, but please, oh please, give Roger Deakins his statue for this wonderful looking Bond movie. Now, are there problems with it? I definitely can't go with the wave that this is the best Bond ever. I definitely don't see this as anywhere close to the way that I feel about Casino Royale. But hey, I thought Casino Royale was one of the best movies ever made. So the fact that it's merely excellent, I think is good enough here. This is a great adventure. I'm really excited to see where they go from here. This is probably my favorite franchise movie of the entire year. When I look back at all the films I was anticipating, Dark Knight Rises, Prometheus, Avengers, the build-up was incredible. This by far is my favorite. So strong recommend. Arnie. Strong recommend. Not my favorite franchise film of the year, but by far, this is my favorite Bond film. I wasn't sure if it could edge past Casino Royale when I went into theaters. I was hearing best Bond film ever. Casino Royale held my number one, but Quantum of Solace, I didn't even recommend it. It was close, but I didn't recommend it. 
So I really thought it was new movie hype. I really didn't think it could be the best Bond ever. But it is. This here surpasses Casino Royale in the interpersonal relationships and the metaphorical story. I think that the more you live with this movie, the more you watch this movie, the more you're going to take out of this movie, the more you're going to see so many of these lines, I'm sure I missed a ton, have double meanings, triple meanings. So much more about theme than about bullets. Brock, at one point you said that the movie was dragging for you. It didn't for me because I view it more like American Beauty than Rush Hour. To me, this is a movie about characters kind of going through a midlife crisis and parents and children, just like American Beauty. And so this movie did something that I didn't think would be possible. Bond transformed in the movie. I transformed in the movie because... I walked out of the theater, transformed into a Bond fan. Hey, look at that. I'm impressed. It's Christmas. Yeah, I would have never thought it. Now, I am a Bond fan of the Daniel Craig Bonds. And my analogy would be, if you encounter Star Trek The Next Generation and love Star Trek The Next Generation, do you have to go back and watch a lot of the bad costumes and hammy acting of the 60s series and say it's great? No, absolutely not. But I like this Craig era a lot. This is my Bond. Someone came to our forums just the other day and said his Bond ended with Die Another Day, and he could not relate to this. Well, I get it. I do. But I think what Vin Diesel and Triple X were saying back around the time of Gold and I were right, and that is my father's Bond. It is the baby boomer's Bond. This is my Bond. I think this is a Bond squarely aimed at 30-something to 40-something Gen Xers because it's a movie that baby boomers can relate to this one because they're dying. M dies. M is the boomer. And I think that the Gen Xers have their representation. We are the Bond in this, which is a great thing to be Bond, to relate to Bond, to feel like Bond. So this is my bond. Deep stories, complex personal relationships, actual statements beyond, hey, let's put a jetpack in here because we like jetpacks. I've become a Bond fan. I'm not going to get the previous series, but they've come out with box sets for each of the actors. They come out with a box set for Craig. I will buy it instantly. I feel like the millennials may be left out of this one, by the way, but they don't have any money or jobs anyway. So strong recommend. Best of the Bond series. Well, I'm somewhere with both of you on a lot of your points. I've also heard Best Bond Ever, and I also put that off to be hype. Hype really has no effect on me. That's why I actually avoid as much as possible. I want to be able to take the journey the movie wants to tell me. And the journey I was going on was a very entertaining, very well-made Bond movie, incredibly shot, very well edited. The music was great. They had a lot of Bond moments for me, the Bond fan. Fantastic characterizations, interpersonal relationships, absolutely. The problems I had, I've expressed. I felt it was heavy-handed in times. I felt it kind of plotted here and there. It felt a lot like Road to Perdition to me. This director did that movie. In the pacing, I mean, and the way the acting versus the action scenes was played out. I could not turn my brain off for this movie. Now, there are other James Bond movies that don't try anything like what this movie is doing. They don't even try to have characters like this or relationships or anything like that. But you sit back and have a great time watching it and are entertained by the stunts and the action and all that kind of stuff. And this movie had that, but I could not get and completely engrossed in this movie all the time. But there certainly were moments that I was on the edge of my seat. A strong recommend for me, too. It is not 
better than Casino Royale in my mind. I think Casino Royale is right there with Stuart says. It's like Jaws to me. It's like just one of those perfect movies. But I agree with Arnie that this is one of those movies where I'm going to go back to it and watch it. I'm going to find new stuff every time. And that's what I love. So while it's not a top five Bond movie for me, it might one day get in there because of all the things I notice it. Much like on Her Majesty's Secret Service for me has gained reverence over the years, the more times I watch, the more I get out of it, this movie probably will itch its way up a little bit more and possibly one day into my top five. But right now it's not. And it's a very, very good James Bond movie, folks. You will not be disappointed. And as a Bond fan, to have a lot of little touches and nuances that I picked up on, I kind of felt like it was a love letter a little bit. You know how Die Another Day really tried to force feed that? Here, they had a lot of those moments too, but not so many that it got arduous. <laughs> they had plenty of arduous things going on here in other places. The vintage thing, for example, and the bullet and the, it, the whole thing. It's just really nice that they put those touches in for people like me. If you pick up on it, great. But as Arnie pointed out, you don't have to to enjoy this movie because so much other things are going on that's positive. So yeah, strong recommend for me as well. Go check it out, folks. I just hope that it doesn't take the 60th anniversary to get the next film. I'd like to think that all this money that's pouring in is going to go back to MGM and they can actually properly fund the next one. Or should I say the next two? The word is that the next Bond film is a two-parter, and Craig is signed for it, but it's going to be a two-movie arc. And maybe they'll bring back Quantum, which they completely dropped from this movie when they set it up in the first two. I'd like to see that, honestly. I really do want to see some of those other culprits. I think that was a great hook. It was a great way of making Spectre feel modern. I'm all for Quantum, just maybe a little bit, not so much with the Mark Forster editing and frenzy. I would have been actually happy if they brought Quantum in here. I think that was a miss, is to not have Silva being funded by Quantum, so that way there was a more global aspect to it. We saw some of that with Spectre, where Spectre would have these personal people out on their grudges. If there had been a tie to Quantum in this one, I think it would have even made the movie stronger. It didn't need it, but it would have been a nice to have to remind us Quantum is out there and to let us know where it's going. A two-movie arc? Never been done with Bond. It seems to be in vogue now to make serials instead of movies. Don't know how I feel about it, but I pray it's half as good as this one. Well, I'll tell you, they keep reinventing Bond with this Craig series, and so at this point, I say bring it on, right? Because they've done so many different things with James Bond in this series, but still make it feel like James Bond for the most part, that it really pays off to let them try new things with the formula, but still have enough James Bond in there for us. So yeah, bring it on. At this point, I don't think we have anything to lose. They've proven they can do something different with Bond and still keep it Bond. All right, so I think we have to do it, guys. We have covered 25 Bond adventures. It's time to get statistical. Who's your favorite? What was the best? Let's try and do this. Now, I know that the number of films we've seen is almost too hard to categorize, but I did it. I went back. I was able to rank all of the films, and I got to say, just by sheer mathematics, Craig wins for me. As far as favorite Bond goes, all three of his films end up in my top ten. Even Quantum of Solace? Yeah, number nine. Wow. I also did have to do some research, but I was able to rank all 25. I will also post that in the forums. For me, Craig is in the best movies. My number one and number two go to Craig. The best Bond for me, though, isn't Craig. He's in the best films. My best Bond is still Brosnan, who has numbers three and number four on the list. So, for me, Brosnan is the quintessential Bond. 
Craig is the Bond who gets the good movies, and yet Roger Moore is who I think of when somebody says James Bond, that's the first face that comes into my mind, because that's what I grew up with. I'm just happy to report that all of the Bonds have one film at least in my top ten. They all had a good one. I really do feel like I like every Bond to some degree, but some more than others. Craig just was the total package for me. He's the best actor, and he's got the right mix of bravado, and now he's starting to show humor, too. I just, for me, he's perfect. I had trouble ranking all 25 in this one's better than this one, especially in the middle. In the middle there, it just gets, in any given day, I can put The World Is Not Enough above Live and Let Die or underneath License to Kill or whatever. Sure. I did make the list. I actually included the two unofficials. Of course, they're tied for the bottom slot (laughs) just because they're just the worst movies. They are. But I have to say that I can give you a top five. I can give you a solid top eight, and I can give you a bottom five. But in the middle there, it's arbitrary. And Stuart, you said something a second ago. In my top five, I have four different bonds. In my top seven, I have all of them. The best Bond to me, the one I think of as my favorite of the entire series of who gets the most elements for me of James Bond is Pierce Brosnan in GoldenEye. GoldenEye is my number one James Bond film. When I think of a James Bond movie, GoldenEye has it all. It has the entire package except for an awesome John Barry score. Number two for me is Casino Royale. It's very much a great James Bond movie, but it's also an incredible movie. But GoldenEye for me is just more fun to watch. Top three and four, Connery, Russia with Love and Goldfinger. Five, For Your Eyes Only. I just love that movie. I love what Roger Moore does in that. I think Roger Moore's portrayal of James Bond in that is great. And it's the most down-to-earth he's ever been. And I think that's important to recognize as he can do it, folks, if he was given the right material. And at the bottom, it should come no surprise to anybody. Diamonds Are Forever, Then Comes Tomorrow Never Dies. And then The Man with the Golden Gum is the bottom of the barrel for me. And you put the two unofficials even below those? Yes. See, for me, the absolute bottom is Moonraker. Moonraker is unwatchable. It is below the 1960s Casino Royale. It had a great first hour, Arnie. You can't dismiss that awesome jump-out-of-the-plane opener. And Casino Royale had Woody Allen and Orson Welles in some wonderful scenes that made me consider recommending the entire movie. So, (laughs) Casino Royale is third from the bottom. The two that don't even have the Woody Allen, Orson Welles high points is The World Is Not Enough and Moonraker. Those are my bottom three. Thunderball and Spy Who Loved Me round out the bottom five. I think when I did the math, I ended up recommending 12 of these movies, and that leaves 13 that I didn't recommend. But I enjoyed aspects of all of them except four. There are four films I would tell anybody to stay away from. The two unofficial ones, Casino Royale 67, Never Say Never Again, and Tomorrow Never Dies and Diamonds Are Forever. I think all of those have no merit. Like, zero. There's not one moment I enjoyed at all, and I just hate them. Other than that, you can dog on Moonraker, you can shoot down Die Another Day's improbabilities, you could say Thunderball was boring, but they all had one element that I really did groove to, and that is not a bad record. I gotta say, Bond is one of the most durable franchises we've ever tackled. One of the longest, but also, fortunately, one of the best. So you recommended 12 films. Yes. That's amazing, because I think the view from the listeners is that I've been the negative one. And I've recommended 14. I recommended 17. I'm a tough grader. Everyone knows that. (laughs) No one wants to take my classes. I am a tough grader. Real tough. But I'm glad that you're walking away from the franchise feeling that there was more positive than negative for you. And that you're a fan. I think that's entirely terrific. And Goldfinger is my number eight favorite James Bond film. And it gets that high a mark because it holds all the trademarks. You gotta see that one. 
Yes. I agree. If I could tell someone to only watch one Bond film to understand what James Bond films are, Goldfinger. It's number four on my list of favorites, but it's number one as far as essentials. You have to see Goldfinger if you see no other. Agreed, and it's number four on my list as well, and for a lot of the same reasons. Also, I just enjoy watching the movie. I think it actually plays very, very well, but I have it underneath From Russia With Love because I love watching From Russia With Love. Goldfinger, I don't return to as much as one would think, being the Bond fan. So we talked about the ranking of the movies. We've also talked this entire retrospective series about the songs. And Stuart, I got to hear what you finally figured out as your top five Bond songs. I liked a lot of them. The average is even greater for the songs than the movies themselves. In fact, some of the movies I didn't really like had some of the best themes. But hands down, the one that I dare even speak because it has been so contentious, my number one will remain forever, Goldfinger. Maybe it isn't even the best song, but it is the one that most typifies what I think about when I hear it. It says James Bond to me faster and more intense than any other piece of music, including the Monty Norman theme song. It just is Bond to me. So Goldfinger's got to be my number one. Live and Let Die, a spectacular, unusual, surprising song is my number two. After that, it gets a little hard to quantify, but I think I'll go with Nobody Does It Better from Spy Who Loves Me, followed by You Only Live Twice, and closing it out with the tip of the hat to Duran Duran of You to a Kill. Nice. I'm not a music critic. I've cared far less about all of these songs than Stuart has. <laughs> a lot of times he's talking about the music and I'm like, I don't remember it. It was there. So I have been able to classify the songs by re-listening to them to ones I like and ones I don't care either way and then ones I dislike and Goldfinger is in the dislike pile, though I do recognize its iconic status. I do think I can have a top five, though. And those are songs that I actually do listen to outside of this retrospective series. And those are A View to a Kill as my number one. Hands down, I hear that song almost every week. Live and Let Die is my number two. For Your Eyes Only, number three. Nobody Does It Better, number four. And yes, Skyfall, my MP3 purchase, has hit number five. Sorry, aha, you oh. got <laughs> Can't agree with you there, but I like both songs, so hey. And my first one is A View to a Kill. Love that song. Number two is Nobody Does It Better. That reeks James Bond to me. When I hear that song, I can't help but think of James Bond. Number three, Live and Let Die. Stuart said it perfectly. Just an amazing song. Number four is You Know My Name, Chris Cornell from Casino Royale movie. I think it's perfect for the movie. And listening to it, I just like how it rocks. Rounding out my top five is For Your Eyes Only with Sheena Easton. I just want to point out, though, I'm not going to read all my whole top ten, but I do have Louis Armstrong in my top ten from Magic Service. And Surrender. Katie Lang from Tomorrow Never Dies makes my top 10 because I love that song and I wish that was the theme song because by Cheryl Crow's Tomorrow Never Dies way down near the bottom folks yeah <laughs> way down there's only 10 songs I like and The Three Blind Mice is one of them <laughs> you know I, I stayed away from instrumentals to me songs meant lyrics and singers as well so the one from Honor Majesty's Secret Service that is just the John Barry score that overdoes the theme didn't count it the James Bond theme from the cover of Dr. No didn't count it I can counted underneath the mango tree. Those were the ones that I tried to bring in. I had 29 songs. I'm going to put those in the form. We can all bitch and kvetch about how wrong I or right I am there. I think it's a conversation I'll love having for weeks and years to come. I'll paste my list. I didn't include the end credit songs because I thought they were cheesy. <laughs> they were mostly at the bottom. Oh, yeah. Even though I love Goldeneye, the experience of love is... Dead last. <laughs> number 30 of yeah. 31. Dead last. <laughs> 
Well, 31 is Never Say Never Again for me. I, Never Say Never Again is just a terrible song. Yes, that was my 28. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we can all agree and come together that that is complete shit. Yes. My lowest on the dislikes, but again, not entirely ranked, was License to Kill. Yeah, the worst of the official themes. I actually feel that's true. Self-parody. It makes me laugh, though. I mean, can a song be all bad when I'm laughing so hard at Gladys Knight wailing to the rafters about she's got a license to kill going for my heart? It's this funny song. It's just The lowest for me is The World Is Not Enough. That's my absolute least favorite of all the official opening songs. So that's it, guys. We're done. Oh my god, we're done. I know Jacob, when we were doing the Marvel one, started to have questions of if he would survive long enough to get to the end of Marvel or if he'd be hit by a car on the way to Avengers. I just wondered if I'd survive Bond, both from the pitchforks and torches of the listeners, as well as the length of the shows. Tell me about it. I gotta tell you, I don't know what I'm gonna do with my free time now. I'm not watching Bond. (laughs) All of a sudden, I can see my kids. Well, the good news is there are 17 movies you can watch again. I have. (laughs) So it's been a long journey for me, guys, getting to this point. This is the series that over the years I've been doing now playing, I guess this is the one that I knew eventually I had to do with you guys, like you had Alien, Stuart. Yeah. Uh, This is my favorite series that we've reviewed. I'm glad to have been a part of it with you two. And now we can look on to 2013 and all that brings for now playing. Well, before 2013, we still have several weeks of shows. We have already announced... We are doing the Silent Night, Deadly Night series for the holidays. Today is Thanksgiving. It is now the official start of holiday season, even though the stores tried to make us think that was six weeks ago. And we are going to be counting down the ho-ho holidays to Christmas with five Silent Night, Deadly Night films, plus the Anchor Bay remake, making an additional sixth film we weren't even planning on doing. They first released news about it at Comic-Con. It is coming out in just a couple days in theaters and then a week after on home video. So you will have that for some Yuletide cheer. Yes, I maybe spoke too soon. I said Skyfall was my favorite franchise theatrical release of the year, but I have not seen Silent Night 2012 yet, so it could change. Check in with me on Christmas Day and we'll see. I guarantee it will not be derivative of The Dark Knight. (laughs) And then we'll end the year with Evil. New Year's Evil. Oh, I love this one, or at least I think I do. I saw this as a kid, but believe it or not, between all of the other slashers at April Fool's Day, Friday the 13th, Halloween, Christmas, there was one attempt to try and do a New Year's killer, and this is it. New Year's Evil from 1980. We're going to do that one as our end of the 2012 show. And then a lot of people have asked, what are we doing next year? And... We are going to start the year with more horror. They are doing a Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequel reboot. We're not quite sure. It's a new production company. It's not a massacre. Notice they just cut that word off. It's just Texas Chainsaw 3D. It could just be an instructional video. Who knows? (laughs) And then we will start off 2013, our first retrospective of the year, Die Hard, leading up to It's a Good Day to Die Hard. That's right, Bond fans. Don't go too far. Maybe if horror isn't your thing, we will be talking a little bit about action. And I have not seen those movies in decades. I'm really looking forward to that one. And I don't think I ever saw the third and fourth one at all. Yippee-yay-yay. Yippee-yay-yay. Oh, that's why it's (laughs) taken me so long. I've forgotten. Yippee-yay-yay, mother... Then we're doing Stephen King. All of it? 
I am afraid so, or at least as much as we can get done. Obviously not going to be completed in the year 2013. I think if we did a Stephen King movie every week, it would take us several years still to complete. But we will make a dent in it with the premiere of The New Carrie. There is a remake of King's first novel, and that's how we're going to approach the series. We're going to go through in the order in which he wrote his novels and watch all the adaptations that came out surrounding those works. So we're starting off with four Carrie films. The Brian De Palma 1976 movie, its weird sequel that I didn't really know about called The Rage, Carrie 2. And I, of course, saw as soon as it came out. (laughs) Of course. A TV movie that attempted to try and spin her off into her own Hulk-like series. Which I watched live on broadcast. (laughs) And then this new thing with Hit Girl. Apparently I'll be there opening night. Uh, You know, I think she could do a good job. I'm looking forward to this one. Some reboots I give a cocked eye to, but this one could pull off. I think they could deliver something great with her in the title role. Well, Stephen King is going to have to take a little bit of a backseat also as we continue our DC Comics retrospective because next year, Man of Steel is coming out. So after Carrie comes G.I. Joe for just a couple weeks and then Superman. And we will be even spending two weeks on Superman 2 giving the Donner cut the treatment that the listeners asked us to. Another franchise I have not seen probably since theaters. I remember loving aspects of it, but I will be coming to it as fresh as humanly possible. And we'll also have a donation series in the spring, our biggest one ever with a lot of horror. We will release more details about that when the time comes. But stay with us at nowplayingpodcast.com. Through 2013, we have another big year planned. And also don't forget, if you've enjoyed Now Playing, you can support us. You have just a few more days through November 30th to get a donation in, and be thanked with a platinum-level donation DVD. It's a fifth anniversary DVD for Now Playing. It's Bond's 50th. It's Now Playing's fifth. It has every podcast we've ever done, 2007 through 2012. This will have all the Silent Night, Deadly Night podcasts on it. It will have New Year's Evil on it. It will ship around the time of New Year's Evil and have all of our donation series from the past. Child's Play, Jaws, Exorcist, the Spielberg films, Alien, my personal favorite. All of them, it's a multi-DVD ROM set, more than one disc. Over a hundred of the episodes I've gone back and remastered for higher audio fidelity, behind-the-scenes content that you can't get anywhere else, interviews with us discussing movies and podcasting. So much is jammed onto these discs just for platinum donors who donate before December 1st. Find all the details by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. And if you're not quite ready to let go of James Bond, join me over at Books and Nachos. I'm covering The Man with the Golden Gun this week. And then, Brock, you close us out with Octopussy. Yeah, that's the last story of the last James Bond book ever released by Ian Fleming, the Octopussy and Living Daylights short story collection. I'm looking forward to hearing that. I really want you to explain to me how that title (laughs) makes any damn sense. (laughs) Well, stay tuned and listen. Thank you for listening. Now playing will return. That sounds like a dismissal. 
was rather looking forward to breakfast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing James Bond Retrospective Series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, James. The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Em really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. She'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Well, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Vinganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. Madame, what about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. Javier Bardem, Ralph, excuse me, I can't believe I said Ralph. Yeah, the people really seem to want this one and want to go back to it again, which is a sign of, I got nothing. (laughs) Abort, abort. We open the movie with James Bond working in Turkey with Agent Eve to receive we open the movie with James Bond working in Turkey with Agent Eve to recover a stolen hard drive that contains in the... We open the movie with James Bond working in Turkey with Agent Eve to recover a stolen hard drive that contains the identities of all NATO operatives working undercover in terrorist organizations. A chase occurred... <laughs> wow. What? That, that, was just, that was a sentence. I can see why you struggled. <laughs> <laughs> Are you making fun of me or being serious? I don't know anymore. I, I, well, I mean, kind of <laughs> well, both. both, I think, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was punctuated perfectly, but a long yes. sentence. It was. I'm over Turkey, or so I thought, <laughs> until I saw how cool it could be again via motorcycle chase. So you're saying that Turkey was putting you to sleep? <laughs> that, is a, that is a...
that is appropriate for this disc for the that is appropriate for this podcast coming out on Thanksgiving. There you are. <laughs> uh, yeah, Stuart. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things about Oscars and stuff. But. No, they're saying it's probably not going to make it because of that reason. So I guess they'll just give it to some jingle from an animated movie. Isn't that always what wins? <laughs> <laughs> what did Wreck-It Ralph sing? That'll be <laughs> Randy Newman, come on up. <laughs> God knows. I wrote the same damn song. I wrote the same damn song. When we're first seeing Sam Green, there's the question of... Who's Sam Green? You mean Severin? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Gay Green? She's not as good now. It turns out there is a porn called Octopussy. It would make sense in that context. I don't think that's what Fleming wrote about, but I could be wrong. You'll have to find out if you listen to hey, Books and Not Just. He gave recipes for omelets. Why not have a three-way or an eight-way? Okay. They're really the same thing. <laughs> I feel weird. I feel I went to a place I should not go. <laughs> they both involve eggs? 